joy, a phenomenon that transcends our circumstances, a mystery that confounds the enemies. When the world sees despair and doubt, our joy in Christ sings louder and louder, rising above the temporary and embracing the eternal. From prison cell to palace, from dungeon to deliverance, everything pales in comparison to knowing Christ and seeing His beauty. To be content in all things, to have peace in the midst of anxiety, to rejoice in suffering, the impossible made possible through Christ. Oh, to be found in Him, to be called a citizen of heaven, to be made righteous. How could we do anything but rejoice? All right. Good morning, Trinity Church. How you doing? It's great to see you today. Can we thank the band? What a great job this morning. I love it. And we thank them because they lead so well so that we can do what really a worship service is about, to be preoccupied with God. And that's our hope this morning that that's already started for you. I'm excited. The songs that they've chosen for this week, you will find, are so incredibly connected to the passage in Scripture that we're looking at. If you're here with us today, we, I, that's a weird thing to say, if you're here with us. <laughs> you are here with us, okay? Here in the building, here out on the pavilion, and here online. So I want to welcome all of you and all those different arrangements. We're glad that you're here this second uh, Sunday of September, second Sunday of our series we kicked off last week called Rejoice. We're in the book of Philippians, if you want to find your way there, Philippians chapter 1. Remember that? Go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So find it in the middle there in your New Testament, probably about, I don't know, three quarters or more of the way back in your Bible, and uh, we'll do that. In your Trinity this week, you have some notes if you want to find those. That'll help you track with us through what we're doing today, and uh, that would be our hope too. If you're in a home group, those officially are kicking off this week, so those will be your prompts for your discussion when you meet uh, throughout the week. So we're excited for that on every front. It is a typical second s weekend of September where the Bruins are 0-2 in college football, uh, just becoming a pattern for us lately. And by the way, I know I made a Trojan dig the other day. Can't say much about being 2-0 with a freshman quarterback. So my apologies and whatever. Okay. So... <laughs> That's, that's the only time you'll ever see me do that. Um, uh, by the way, it's really great. Larry reminded me that he is a grad of San Diego State who beat my team last night, as Steve uh, was a grad of Fresno State that beat my team last year. So it's really fun on the pastoral staff to have people who hate your team and then beat them on top of it. So just a lot of non-love the, in the room right now, uh, both directions. So it's great. Um, but we, we are really excited that you're here. Enough about college football. It's a depressing topic. What I want to do, I want to share with you a couple of things that are going on, though, that you can know about. Allison did a great job of sharing with you some of the different events going on this week. I want to tell you about something next Sunday. So a week from tonight, we are going to, just so you know, by the way, I don't know that you would come back for our Sunday night service, but we're obviously not meeting because we're up at the lake. But to kind of recapture some good momentum that that service has had, we're going to have our Sunday night service next week with afterwards, we're going to do street tacos for dinner. And so just $5 a plate, no more than $20 a family. We'd love for you to join us for that. It's going to be next Sunday night, the 15th, right after service. These, I've, I've had these street tacos before a couple different functions. They're amazing. So join us for that. And we'll just have a great time. That's the one thing. If you haven't been to our Sunday night service, 
you haven't experienced our time together in the pavilion afterwards, where people hang out, no doubt, for about an hour after service, just enjoying. We've had food there at different points, and obviously with dinner, it's going to be an awesome time. So join us for that. If you just want to see, and I would say bring a friend. That is the best thing. Bring a friend, buy their tacos, and hang out. Promise them that. Tacos afterwards on me, that is a great way to introduce them to Trinity Church. So I want to invite you next Sunday to consider that. Also, another thing, when you walk out of here today, when uh, Allison was talking about where you can get more information on the plaza, you will see some new signs around what has been sign-wise the information center. As a staff, we've always called it the welcome center, and now we're putting a bit of a twist on it now and calling it the start here booth. We really love this idea of being able to help people that are new at Trinity easily identify that's where I should go. Now, Start Here has meant something to us in our recent past. For about the last year, we have talked about there being a space where you can meet pastors and interact with them about at a once a month rate. We will do that still on occasion, but it'll be obvious, that's obviously where it's at, at the Start Here booth. And so just kind of changing a little bit of that, you're going to hear more and more as our, what we've called our engagement pathway becomes more and more obvious. And we'll share with you pieces as we go along, but that's one thing I just want you to know. We're calling that the Start Here booth. It'll be pretty obvious when you go out there and you see signs on all four sides that that's what that is. All right? Well, we're in Philippians, and Philippians has, uh, it was fun, I was talking to a pastor that you have met before, Ray Johnston, and I were texting the other night, and he said, that's my favorite book uh, of all the letters of Paul. And so it is really one that I just told you last week, I think in the the story of Trinity Church. In our narrative right now, God couldn't have selected even a year ago when he did a better book for us to be in. And so I'm really excited because though this book has some incredibly powerful themes all throughout, it is strung together with this idea of joy. Every single week, not because we're making it up, but we're actually having the word joy in every one of our sermon titles because we're going to see the word joy every single week in this eight-week study. And so we're excited to dive in today a little bit further. We're going to do the second half of chapter one. Last week, we talked about, we love that, hopefully you even took on that idea of memorizing a verse, having been confident of this or being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Where's my candy? Come on, come on, that's a Pavlov's dog thing. I say a verse, you do something for me. But we did that in our group this week. It was really fun to see our group take that on, and I loved it. And so I want to encourage you as well, get God's word into your heart, into your soul, so that it is easy to call upon throughout the week. So we're going to move forward in that. And today what we're seeing, Paul is talking, he's writing this letter back to a group of people who he personally led most of them to the Lord, started the church in Philippi. And we'll, we'll kind of look at the narrative a bit through a lot of angst. There was a lot of challenge the way the church started in Philippi for Paul. And now that Paul is in prison, what he's going to do is he's going to share with them perspective. He's going to say, I want to help you understand that what you are worried most about, don't be. God is using me even though I'm chained to Roman guards and the word, the great news of the gospel is getting out even if it's not happening with me outside these walls, it's working. God is on the move. And so he's sharing with them some encouragement and then powerful words about the perspective that every single follower of Jesus ought to have. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we're going to walk through that a little bit today. Here's our now what statement. Because Jesus is worth it, live with courage now, knowing that your future is with him. 
Because Jesus is worth it. Live with courage now, knowing that your future is with him. Let's look in your notes. Number one, reach your world no matter whomever happens to be in it. Reach your world no matter whomever happens to be in it. We're in Philippians 1, picking it up at verse 12. Paul continues, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Watch this. But what does this matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So Paul's going to share, we said this last week, Philippians is one of the prison epistles written from jail. And so Paul's helping a group of people who I'm sure were very much struggling with the fact that their mentor, their pastor, the founder of the Philippian church was imprisoned for his faith. And they were concerned on lots of fronts for Paul, but even crying out to God, God, how could you have your most successful most influential apostle chained to a a Roman guard where the gospel is not getting out. They saw this as an ultimate failure and maybe even something where God was asleep on the job allowing this to happen to Paul. And Paul's going to give them some correction. He's going to give them some help seeing that's not the case at all. He's actually going to share that the gospel spreads in all kinds of ways, often counterintuitively. Though Paul was geographically limited to a jail cell, the reality is is there were a whole bunch of new people in his relational world. Yes, they were carrying swords and they were in armor. They were Roman guards. But nonetheless, this was his world and he saw he was going to be effective and intentional with those relationships. At Trinity Church, we talk a lot about your relational world, a lot about the idea that you do life with a group of people who really put to the test, they could say they know you, they know how you respond to things, they know about your family, they know about your job, they know about your interests, they're they're people who really, you don't have to build credibility with them because they actually are doing life with you all the time. It's actually embedded. Look on the back of your Trinity this week, and you'll see our mission statement that we're a people rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. That's that's embedded in our core, just the mission that we feel Jesus has called us to. We find that mission statement simply from the great commandment and the great commission, that we're to be a people rooted in Jesus as we're reaching our worlds. And then even in our core values, we're beginning to push those out a little bit at a time. And this really resonates with our core value, that your calling is to influence your world with Jesus. We wanted to make that robust, that we couldn't miss it, that that's what we're called to, to be a people of influence in our relational worlds. And every Jesus follower is called to that. So here's the interesting thing, though. That being said, not just words, but actions and lifestyles and behaviors that we engage. That being said, some of us would say at times, Todd, it is really challenging to be influential in my relational world. And you would agree with me if you just met so-and-so. This person's really tough. 
These people are really challenging. They're even oppositional to me and to the gospel, and that makes sharing my faith really hard. And I'm going to tell you, I get it. I get that that can be challenging. I get that there can be just degrees of strain that go with that. But I want to remind you, that's what we ought to be encouraged by today as we look at Paul's story. Roman guards, this was the highest level of Roman uh, military were in the, the palace that were serving and protecting the emperor that were a part of this group that had Paul under lock and key. So talk about people who were oppositional. Talk about people who they were a part of the government that had dominated the world. Why would we need anything? We're riding high on top of life. And yet Paul's saying, no, you actually serve an emperor who is a fallen human being. I know the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I want to tell you about him. You've maybe heard it before, that group of Roman guards who would maybe serve for hours on end as a shift and then rotate off, those were a group of people who had incredible theology by the time Paul was done with them. They might not have believed it, but they sure heard it, and he was consistent in sharing that with him. And so I just want to put that out to you as you think about, hey, there are some real challenging relationships. Todd, I have neighbors that they, I do life with because I have to approximate to them, but man, they're rough. I have a coworker who's so oppositional to me. Students, you have someone who's sitting next to you in a classroom that you're just like, man, this person is so hard for me to be around. Uh-huh. And that's what I would say to all of us. I get it. That is absolutely true. We don't get to go around picking who's going to be in our relational world because then we just pick people who are just like us. And guess what? We'd also pick people who probably already know Jesus because that's comfortable. God has supernaturally, strategically put people in your world for the purpose of you getting to be a person of intentional influence. That's what I want you to see in your notes. Though we may have people in our relational worlds that we wouldn't have asked for, like Paul being next to Roman guards, we need to see that every relationship is an opportunity for us to be intentional Jesus influencers. Every relationship is an opportunity to be intentional Jesus influencers. And as we see life through that lens, then what we're going to begin to do is you're going to begin to have stories where we're going to say, hey, because of a, a change in, in where I work in terms of even my cubicle or because of neighbors that moved in, there are new opportunities for me to be influential in people's lives. You're going to, your radar goes up and you begin to think, God, how can I be influential in new ways? And that's super exciting. Look at this. What's also going on is that fellow believers, as they heard about Paul's imprisonment, even those local, what was interesting is it didn't cause them to cower. It caused them to be all the more bold. They began sharing their faith. So the point is the gospel is going out. It's going out to the Roman guards that are guarding Paul, but even more out in the community and not through Paul himself, but others are being encouraged. Look at this quote in your notes on the screen. The chained inspired the unchained. I love that phrase. When believers heard that Paul used his chains as an opportunity to express his faith in Christ, even to the palace guard, they were emboldened to proclaim Christ fearlessly, even when they might have been intimidated to keep their mouths shut. That's a great line. The chained inspired the unchained. And that is so true. And here's the thing. You've seen this before. I want to even help you see that this is actually not a new idea, even in your own life. Here's how it's worked. It might not have been in relationship to being chained, but it was in relationship to trials. You were going through something that was difficult, something you would have never signed up for. Yes, Lord, please bring more pain into my life. 
But you were going through that, and in the midst of that, God had been growing you in terms of your trust in him. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't just up and up and up. But man, you continue to demonstrate, God, you are in control. God, I trust you through this valley you're taking me through, and I'm just going to hold on tight. And as you did, people who were nearby you watched. People who themselves would have said, I could have never trusted God for that. But you kept clinging to him, and you were an amazing encouragement. You were an amazing sense of, of real life, flesh and blood. This is what it means to walk by faith. And people were encouraged, and they actually became more able, more ready to trust God for things they couldn't have, didn't think they could before. That's how it works, and that's what was going on with Paul. He was going through an incredible challenge, but as a result, people who were on the outside could see it, and they were encouraged, and they were taking their faith more seriously. Then a wild thing pops up in the narrative, or in the passage we just read. Paul recognizes that there's a mixed motivation for those who are preaching the word of God. Some are actually preaching out of a bad attitude, out of a desire to want to make life hard for Paul. That is a really weird thing to stop and think about, the idea that people would actually say, I want to proclaim the great news of Jesus so Paul gets it. This is really weird. Like, why, why of all things is it that? And, and what we do is we enter into the world of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Now, all of a sudden, that becomes pretty applicable to all of us. It might not be that you're like, hey, I'm really going to get back in Joe, so I'm just going to preach Jesus big time. It might not have been that, but you've done things. Maybe it was like, hey, Joe's slacking off and there's an opportunity to serve and you're doing it and hoping Joe notices and feels real bad. You know, doing the right thing for the wrong reason, you and I have all been there and done that. So Paul recognizes, and Paul doesn't just have this kind of, you, you know, like, oh, I kind of think that's happening. Paul was convinced that was happening. It was obvious at some level for him to know this. It wasn't just like, well, I'm guessing or I'm... Hey, by the way, I'll just tell you, every single time I have tried to read people's motives, I'm always, always, always wrong. So I'm done. I'm just done. I gave up on that. Until it's overt that someone's doing the right thing for the wrong reason, then I just go, you know, I'm just going to believe the best. It's all I can do. Paul had some sort of understanding that it wasn't just, I kind of think this. He was convinced they were doing this. And even out of this word, this phrase we read, selfish ambition. We'll see that word again in chapter 2. And it means acting for one's own gain, regardless of the discord or strife that it causes. Now, it's fascinating. I don't mean to have a bunch of football analogies today. But in the world of professional football, the former Pittsburgh Steeler, the former Raider, and now the New England Patriot... Antonio Brown posted this thing on Instagram this weekend that basically said, you make people really mad when you do what's best for you. Yeah. Yeah, number one, you do. But number two, so why is doing what's best for you the best thing to do? I'm not here to bash Antonio Brown because most of America thinks that way. So it's not on him, but it just was a stark reality. That is the essence of selfish ambition. Do what's best for you, and it doesn't matter who it hurts. It doesn't matter what strife is developed. That's what I'm going to do. And so this is, that's the embodiment of what this passage is saying. They were doing things that were ultimately going to be best for them no matter who it hurt in the process. 
even in this, this is what I want you to see. You and I, you and I have even felt, let's even say you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, it wasn't like I'm judging motives. You knew this person was doing the right thing for the wrong reason despite you. Simple question. Did you have an attitude like Paul does? I sure didn't. Because Paul says, you know what? Even so, I rejoice in the fact that the gospel is being preached. Jesus' name is being known among people, and for that, I rejoice. And I go, God, please give me an attitude like that, because I often don't have one. That was powerful, powerful to look at. There's that word again, rejoice. We saw it last, word, last week for the first time, that word joy, and we said the simple, just kind of quick reminder definition is grace recognized. I just think that's an easy way to remember what joy is. So when we have the word rejoice, it's in a verbal form, so then you basically say, I recognize grace. I see the grace of what God is doing even in the midst of a challenging situation. Let's move on. Number two in your notes. Heaven is not a parting gift, but the prize itself. Heaven is not the parting gift, but the prize itself. We continue in Philippians 1 verse 18. Paul writes, and yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will always have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress, watch, and joy, joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I want you to first see in this part of the pa- first part of the passage the partnership that Paul is um, relying on. He says, you know what is getting me through this time? You have committed to pray for me. Your prayers. And, and one thing that I, we love, I just love at Trinity Church, after every single worship service, there's a group of people that come down front and they're just simply available to pray with you. They don't want to counsel you. They don't want to ask you a bunch of intrusive questions. They simply want to pray for whatever is burdening your heart today. I love that. And Paul's making a case for the fact he needs, he's not this guy who can just do it by himself. He is relying on, counting on their prayers for him. I need you to be praying for me. Allison mentioned earlier today in the seatbacks, the cards that you can write prayer requests on. Our staff every week prays over those, guaranteed. That's something you can take to the bank that your staff is praying for you when you let us know what's going on. So ask for that. Be humble enough to say, I need prayer for, or the people in my relational world need prayer for. We'd love to pray for you. We want to join you in that. And Paul says, I need that. But look what he also says. It's not only the partnership with them and their prayers for him, but he says, but what also God has supplied for me because he's given me the spirit of Jesus Christ. So talking about the Holy Spirit that dwells within Paul. So Paul's saying there's really two ways that God is buoying me up, two ways he's providing for me, 
And that number one, you are lifting me up, my situation to God on my behalf, intercessory prayer, but also God has given me his spirit to continue to encourage, to continue to strengthen, to continue to give me a Jesus perspective for everyday life. That's powerful. And I want to say that to you, that when you're going through, as we talk today, man, this message might just, might just be incredibly resonating within you because you are going through something deeply, significantly challenging. It might not be in a jail cell chained to a Roman guard, but man, it feels like it. It feels like prison in a lot of ways. And I just want to say that as you seek people who we would gladly join you in prayer, even today, before you leave this place, also realize that God has also resourced you as his child, his son or daughter. He's given you his very spirit to indwell you. Rely on that spirit of God indwelling you this week. Allow that to be something that is palpable, something you're aware of, something that you're asking. Remember that phrase we saw in, Philipp- or in Ephesians? Be being filled. God, keep having your way with me. Let me surrender my hold on my life to what you want to do. Paul notes that his desire is that he would have sufficient courage to both live and die in the way that Christ would be exalted in him through his faithfulness to the one who's been ever faithful to him. And then he writes these powerful words, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a verse that we've chosen to memorize this week. Could we say it aloud together? Let's read it. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're going to leave that up for just a second. Look at it at the screen and just process that. Maybe go back a slide. <laughs> Sorry. It's like, leave that up and then we switch. Do you want to go back one real quick? There we go. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. I thought before, I think I get, we'll talk about the back half in just a second, but I, I've struggled before with the front half. For me, to live is Christ. What, what does that actually mean? And then I thought, thought of it this way. Look at the slide. Life is. I remember I've seen that on different shirts or different things in in marketing. Life is. I want you to ask yourself the question, what do other people put in that blank? Life is, maybe it's a favorite sport or a hobby. Life is hoops. Life is hiking. That might be for some people. Others might put, maybe it's a favorite person or a favorite season of the year. Life is Susan. Life is summer. Maybe for others, it's a favorite place or a favorite pleasure. Maybe life is Sri Lanka or life is shopping, whatever it may be. But, but you know, when you kind of think about that, you kind of go, yeah, I've, I've heard those phrases used before. The sum total of life is this thing or person or activity. Simple question. If that's what other people would say, what would you say? Now, I didn't ask you what's the right answer. What should you say? I simply said, demonstrated in your life, looking at the sum total of what you're about, life is what? I know that's a pretty good look in the mirror kind of question. My goal today is not to guilt you, but it is to have you look in the mirror a little bit and go, God, what would I say in that place? Because what Paul says is Paul says that life is Jesus, the God-man, who came to make a way to get us out of a hopeless, 
reality of living as fallen people in a fallen world. Life is what only he can provide, being this wellspring of joy. He said it in John 10, I've come to bring you life and life to the full. Jesus is the only name, the only thing that fits in that blank that truly will satisfy, that truly will make life worth living. And I'm not here up here today to sell you something. I'm number one, just simply teaching the word of God, but number two, wanting to demonstrate that in my own life as well. This is where it's found. And we're all hungry. We're all thirsty looking for something that would fill that gap. But Jesus at the middle, Jesus at the edges, Jesus at the mountaintop, Jesus in the valleys, Jesus is life. Life is Jesus. That, that's what Paul is about. That's what Paul is saying. He doesn't stop there saying that simply Jesus is his life now, but he goes on to say that we will see him, he will see him face to face when he dies, and that will be even better. As good as it is to be known and to know Jesus in this life, better by far is the phrase he used, will it be to be face to face. And do you know why he can say that with, with such great assurance? He rightly understood that eternity with Jesus is not the consolation prize. It's not the parting gift that you receive when you die, but instead, because of who you place your faith in, Jesus is the prize. Jesus is, and eternity with him, is what it's all about and what you and I want. We were built for heaven. We made much of this idea during our spring series called After This Life. We talked a lot about eternal things, both realities of being with God forever and separated from him forever. And as we walked that through, I remember trying to, in my own spirit as well, making much of this idea that often our attitude as Christians, I remember having this attitude, heaven will be great after I fill in the blank, have this experience, have this relationship, get that job, go to this place, whatever your thing is, whenever we think heaven will be awesome once I have done X, we have failed to see what Jesus has really promised us. And my goal is not to make you feel badly for having that attitude and perspective. Instead, I want to woo you. I want to woo you to see and understand what Paul understood. It wasn't even in his mind the question, which is better, to stay here and to live in Christ or to be with him face to face. This just outweighed it by far. The challenge for us in Southern California as Christians here, the scales don't look that uh, obvious. We have a lot of comfort. We have a lot of ambitions. We have a lot of goals. And I'll just say Every comfort, every ambition, every goal fails in light of the reality of being with God forever. So my encouragement is that rather than you feeling bad, I'd want you and I to be wooed by this idea. God, I want to be present. I want to give myself to you and your mission here. But man, someday, and hopefully someday soon, you'll return and take me to your home that's what I want to be. That's what it's about. Look how C.S. Lewis put it. He said this, kind of through that context of joy. All joy emphasizes our pilgrim status. That's a great word, pilgrims. We're on our way to somewhere. All joy, it emphasizes our pilgrim status, always reminds, beckons, awakens desire. Our best havings are wantings. 
our best havings, the things I wish I had in my hands are still elusive because they're still yet to come. I love the way, by the way, Paul uses the same idea in his letter to the Colossians. Look what he said, Colossians 3.1. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now look at verse four. When Christ, who is your life, That's the same concept from here in Philippians. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul concludes his thought by stating that he knows that it's better for him to remain. It's better for the Philippians. Might not be better for him, but like, hey, I want to be here. I want to be helpful to you. And that's what God has on my, my timetable right now is to be here and to be helpful to you. So even though Paul longs to be at home, he says, but I'm going to remain because I want to invest my life in helping you become all that God wants you to be. Man, what a great perspective. Look at the way we've kind of summed it up in your notes. Jesus' promise to us of eternity with him in heaven creates confidence in us for our tomorrow while we labor faithfully on mission today. It provides confidence for us for our tomorrow while we labor faithfully on mission today. Finally, number three in your notes, suffering isn't a reason to live inconsistently with the gospel. Suffering isn't a reason to live inconsistently with the gospel. We're in Philippians 1 verse 27. Whatever happens, he's writing now back to them, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, meaning those who oppose you, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Here's what I want you to see. I love this passage today because it is so much of a building passage. Everything we have done up to this point is leading to this last paragraph. You see, Paul is not just giving a report. Oh, by the way, you know I'm in prison. This is how it's going. Paul is not just giving them perspective about how he sees heaven and the value of living life, understanding his identity in Christ here, and then one day being with him will be so... He's not just sharing this stuff to share it. It's all leading to this paragraph. You, Philippian Christians, are suffering. That word has gotten back to me. Remember, Paul writes this letter in response to a letter he received. So as he's hearing about what they're going through, Paul says, all this stuff in chapter one to get to the point, I know you're going through it. And not just suffering trials, but suffering persecution because they named the name of Jesus. That was the season this group of Philippian Christians were in. And here's the big idea. Not only is Paul building to this, but here's what Paul says. I know what it is to suffer in Philippi because I went first. That's how this book begins. Last week we said that Acts chapter 16 has this, uh, this great way 
of being able to help us understand the, the narrative of Philippians. When did Paul arrive there? How did he share the gospel? How many people initially kind of came to faith and made the Philippian church? And one of the things that we talked about very briefly last week was the reason that the gospel really started getting root was actually not because of success, but because Paul was put in prison. Paul and Silas, this wonderful narrative, we wouldn't have this to call upon if it didn't mean what it meant for Paul. Paul and Silas cast a demon out of a slave girl who was being used to tell fortunes. Completely horrible, just use of a person. And so as a result, her owners get really frustrated and they go to the local authorities and they say, these guys are preaching stuff we don't believe. None of us as, quote, Romans, we said a Roman colony, you need to do something with them. So without even asking, they take them over, they beat them with rods. I didn't say they got out a yardstick and gave them a slap on the hand. They beat Paul and Silas with rods. They throw them in jail to be tried. It's like, we'll try you after we beat you. And in the middle of the night, that's the story of this earthquake that happens. All the doors go flying open. And as, as the, the prisoners would leave, the Philippian jailer thinks, my life is over if they get out of here. He's about to kill himself. And Paul says, hold on. None of us have left. You, you have not failed to do your job. And at that point, more important than Paul fleeing for his life was the fact that he could be someone who could introduce life to this Philippian jailer. It would be that next morning that the jailer and his whole family got baptized. That, that's the narrative in which the book of Philippians begins. And I want you to see not only the power of God, but I want you to see what it took for Paul to be faithful to share the gospel with this group of people he'd never met beaten, wrongfully imprisoned, didn't even leave when he could have. These are all the things that Paul said, you know what, it's worth it to me to be able to share the gospel than to benefit myself and get out of a jam. All this happened not in some mythical land, but in a real place called Philippi, the same city to which this letter is written, to a group of people who, like their pastor Paul, we're facing persecution and injustice because of the name of Jesus. Paul is simply reminding them, I know you're suffering because I suffered there too. And I get it. It's rough. It is a hard thing to keep putting one foot in front of the next. And he encourages them along the way. He says to live lives worthy of the gospel. You're suffering persecuted for your faith. Don't give up now. Don't see this as something that you're just going to toss aside because it gets hard. Strive together as one for the gospel. Without being frightened of any of those who oppose you, their suffering for Jesus was really real. The challenge for us today is it's still pretty hypothetical. Now, not for every one of us. Look in your notes. Jesus followers all around the world are suffering for their faith today. And while we may not suffer in significant ways yet, this passage is powerful because it prepares us for when we will. That's not me being doom and gloom. It's me simply saying this has always happened to Jesus, people who follow Jesus. It's an oppositional reality. We said it was oppositional last week because Philippi was a Roman colony, and who was the center of Rome and Roman religion was the emperor. To defy the emperor was to say, hey, you know what? 
there is an alternative. There is actually the truth, and that his name is Jesus. That was something that was absolutely looked upon with scorn. The reality is, is that every one of us at some point are bound to suffer for this great thing of what we call eternal life. Jesus was the one who actually told us this would happen. Look on the screen. John 15 and John 16 say this. Remember what I told you. He's talking to his disciples. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. I've told you these things so that in me you may have, may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Peter says it later on to a group of Jesus followers who are suffering literally all around the world. He says this in 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, that's the same word we've seen, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So see what God is saying to you today. Number one, know in advance that persecution and suffering will come because you wear the name of Jesus and that's what they did to him. But secondly, don't be surprised. See it as part of the followership now, knowing that Jesus is good for every promise he's made for you, given to you now and forever. Our now what statement this week, because Jesus is worth it, Live with courage now, knowing that your future is with him. Let me pray. Father, we say thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of Philippians that absolutely is written to be an encouragement to us. And if we put ourselves back 2,000 years ago in the feet, in the, in the shoes of these Philippian Christians who were suffering because of what it meant to follow Jesus in Philippi. Today, we receive that same encouragement that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We receive that same encouragement today that no matter where we are, whatever relational world that we happen to have, people who enter and exit that world, God, give us the, the attitude, the intentionality to be Jesus influencers in those spaces. But God, especially... When the day comes that we might suffer for bearing your name, for wearing your name, God, help us to be a group of people who don't live with surprise, who aren't as though all of a sudden we need to set aside the gospel because it gets hard. God, help us to be a people who simply keep entrusting ourselves to you, knowing it will be absolutely worth it. You may be here today, and as we talk about this Jesus and even living a life that would be willing to suffer for him. Wow, what a great way to share the gospel today. Hey, if you're interested in suffering, sign up. But I want to tell you, I love that the Bible has no fine print. It's wide open. It's very clear. There's no bait and switch. When you understand all that Jesus has promised to you for eternity, for those of us who put our faith in him, no degree of suffering would ever mitigate that. So I want to extend to you this opportunity if you would, A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. If you would, B, believe. Believe that Jesus is the only Savior available and C, choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I put my hope, my trust, my confidence in you, not myself, to be good enough. 
helping not the scales somehow weigh each other, that's a bunch of bunk, but instead you are the one who lived this sinless life, died the sacrificial death, was raised supernaturally on the third day. I put my hope in what you've accomplished for me. I choose to live a life now following after you. Father, we have 20 plus people today who are going to demonstrate that in baptism. And we are so grateful. Their stories remind us of the decision we have made today. You have that opportunity to make that same decision. Father, we love you and we pray in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. So we're going to close with one more song. Um, during this